For farmers and landowners approaching the end of their careers, determining how to keep farmland in the family, or at the very least in farming, can be a challenging proposition. What are the options for landholders committed to ag? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. For farmland owners who aren't interested in simply selling off heritage property to the highest bidder, exploring alternatives can be a daunting process, even when there is a clear farm family heir who's interested in continuing the business. The good news is there are multiple options for property holders who are committed to avoiding development and keeping their land in agriculture. And DTN's Victoria Myers joins us today to explore exactly what some of those options look like. Today, we're taking a closer look at conservation easements, how to work with local and state land trusts, and what kind of financial and tax tools exist to help support these efforts. We'll talk life insurance and working with non-relative farm heirs, dive into the benefits and limitations of trusts versus limited liability corporations, and hear more about recent and potential future updates to estate tax rules. Then Victoria will give us some insight into her next set of stories on shifting farmland prices across the country right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential more than ever to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at mydtn.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN Senior Editor Victoria Myers has been following trends in farmland and exploring options for farmland succession for years. Victoria, I wonder if you could start out by just talking to us a little bit about why you decided to tackle this topic and why now? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate it. Land succession is a huge issue with all of our readers. Uh, if you think about it, agriculture, whatever area of agriculture you're in, it, it starts at that ground level where your feet are on the ground. That is where agriculture starts. So whether it's cropland, whether it's pasture, whether it's timberland, it is always a concern as people begin to age and generations change. We go from one generation to the next. What happens to that land? In a lot of cases now, we see a lot of women, the last in that line with land and there's no one following them and they're not really sure exactly what they want to do with that land. And so we thought this was a unique opportunity to talk to some people that represented that side of the story. 
I think especially those folks um, who don't have direct heirs or who are thinking about how to do some non-traditional transitions, but also farmers who do have heirs and are just trying to figure out how to do it in the most kind of beneficial way. Talk about the options that folks have for transitioning land other than just selling to the highest bidder. Yeah, there are a lot of options. And I think one of the things that people need to really think about is, first of all, do they need income from that land? How important is that as they age? And then secondly, what they want to see happen to that land. And, and some people are very passionate about what they'd like to see happen to the land. For example, Julie Moore and her sister, Nancy Hackney, we featured in the article, neither one have heirs and they have a lot of land in Texas. And the land was very important to them. In fact, Julie Moore had a long career as an endangered species biologist, and she was really interested in preserving longleaf pine forest. So she and her sister, although the land that they owned in Texas had a lot of development potential, they decided they wanted to keep that land as it was. And so they established a conservation easement working with a particular organization over there, the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. So that's what they did. And it, they were an example of people who had a very emotional connection to the land. And I think we have to start by just looking at what people want to have happen to that land and then what their individual needs may be from a financial standpoint. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about, you mentioned they worked with the land trust, they got a conservation easement. Tell us a little bit more about what that process looked like. Who was this land trust? Okay, this is a fairly new group in uh, Texas. The Texas Agricultural Land Trust uh, is actually a group that was created by the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association the Texas Farm Bureau, Texas Wildlife Association. So these groups came together to create this approach for landowners to set up conservation easements. And so far, they've helped establish 270,000 acres of land and 1,500 miles of rivers, creeks, and streams. They've set those aside for conservation use. Now, that doesn't mean that the owners don't get to sell the land, but because the land is restricted in terms of development rights, that changes the value of the land, but it also means that the land will be there for generations to come for others to enjoy in the future. So it's uh, conservation, obviously a big focus of what a conservation easement is doing. Are there other kind of rules or limitations that landowners should be thinking about if they are interested in exploring more on the easement side? The conservation varies so much from one state to the next. It, it is, it, it's impossible to give a blanket statement about uh, what a conservation easement is. I tell people you need to research what's going on in your state. And if you're really interested in a conservation easement, find a group that's close to your heart 
that they have the same philosophies that you have about protecting the land. And then look at how they approach things and look at their timelines and be sure that they have something in place to pay for the follow-up work because these groups need to be able to check on a regular basis, on a routine basis, to be sure that the, the easements are following the agreement that you signed. So that's an important thing. And that's something I liked about the TALT. They made sure that they were covered on the financial side so that they could continue to do good work for years to come. Thinking about the financial side, you talked about part of the thought process for landowners being whether or not you need income from land moving forward. I think carbon carbon credits, carbon trading has been a big topic that's been covered throughout kind of DTN. But yeah, where do potential carbon credits or water credits, water markets fit into this equation, the land succession equation, the land sale equation? At this point, everyone that I've really talked to about this, whether I'm writing about land values or succession, it's too early. The contracts, when we talk about carbon contracts, are all over the board. It is just too early for that to be a consistent marketable aspect of what people are going to do in terms of succession planning. I think that the day will come when that, as well as water availability and water credits, they're all going to play a role, but we're just not there yet. Yeah, that makes sense. And then broadening out the conversation a little bit, I wonder if you could talk about whether it's farmers, whether it's folks like the women you've mentioned already, who are trying to transition farmland, trying to keep land in farming. I wonder if you could talk about some of the other options. I think you talked about LLCs in the article. How can an LLC help as part of that kind of transition story? Yeah, there are a lot of options. I think that one of the things people are most familiar with is the idea of a trust. They go to an attorney and they set up a trust and the family members are the trustees and some of the family members are going to work the operation and some are not. And and that's all fine and good. But another path to succession uh, is the LLC. And, And many of our readers already have LLCs. They have farming operations that are established as LLCs. The LLCs can actually hold your land. You can set up a board within your LLC. Every state is different as far as what it costs to maintain an LLC, but frankly, the cost of that is often significantly less than establishing a trust. And LLCs can go on forever. Whereas a land trust has some limitations on how long that can exist without making some major changes to that. So I always tell people at least think about the LLC as an option because it's a fairly new option. It's especially good when there are multiple owners of the land and, um, A trust often sets up a situation where, um, you know, individuals can get into arguments and family issues and one person can essentially force a land sale. But in an LLC where there are multiple owners of the land, the LLC kind of prevents that. That transitions well into another question about 
Whether it's a farmer who maybe has multiple heirs, but only one of them is working on the farm, or in a situation where a farmer is hoping to transition farmland to non-family members, how can an LLC versus a trust fit into a situation where, yeah, maybe the transition looks a little uh, unconventional? One of the things that people will do with an LLC when they don't have family members that they want to transition the land to is you can actually bring on young producers who can't afford to buy the land. And that was another example we had in the story out of Vermont, where land is very expensive per acre. And so some landowners will partner up with young wannabe producers, and they gradually will transition the land over to them. But in the meantime, they're business partners under the LLC and they decide who gets what and how much out of each crop each person gets, often based on the amount of work someone puts in. So there there are as many ways to structure an LLC agreement as a transition plan as you can imagine. It's really you, you have to stay within the law, but the law is not particularly detailed about this. If it makes sense to you and your business owner, and it makes sense to the young producer that wants to come in and they see it as an opportunity, a lot of times you can find a place in the middle where that works for everyone. I think that's more the case with an LLC as opposed to a trust. And then we also have other ways to pass things down. Sometimes it's about the money. Sometimes it's about making sure that the next generation has the money that they need to pay inheritance taxes or to buy land or to bring the equipment that they need on. And so sometimes life insurance can be a really useful uh, way to pass down the farm. So you have to look at all of these options, and there there are a lot of them. And so we talked to Kevin Leibold, Extension Farm Management Specialist at Iowa State, and he said that he sees all these issues that we talked about in the article. Often, though, the issues come down to a transfer of labor, a transfer of management, and a transfer of assets. And he says that people are often willing to transfer the work but they're not as willing to transfer the management. They're not as willing to let go of all that decision-making that they've done for decades. It's a very difficult transition for a lot of people. And so that's where the generations need to really work together and be very transparent about what they want and be able to have that discussion in a positive and productive and non-confrontational way. Yeah, a challenge often easier said than done. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Just one more question. You spoke to it largely there, but I'll throw it out in case there was anything additional. Thinking about tax or financial tools that farmers should be thinking about or thinking about looking more into as they think about succession and land transition in particular, anything come to mind? Well, the one thing I tell people is, is keep an eye on what happens in the next couple of years. Estate taxes could go back up for 2026. Um, it's going to be a hot political topic, especially as we move closer to the elections. Um, but landowners should have the year 2026 in their mind because that's when the current lifetime estate and gift tax exemption rate 
which is uh, close to 13 million for individuals and 25.8 million for married couples. At that point, it could be cut in half and adjusted for inflation unless it's extended. When we saw the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 nearly double the lifetime gift and tax exemptions, everyone was really excited about that because prior to that, the exemption for individuals was 5.6 million and for couples, it was 11.18 million. And so if we saw the clock roll back on that, especially in light of the fact that land values have gone up astronomically in the last decade, I think that could create a real hardship on family farms. And it makes estate planning really crucial. And producers, landowners, you need to talk to your tax, your legal professionals, and you don't need to wait until the last month of 2025 to do it. You need to have a plan in place as early as possible so that you don't get caught in a bad situation. Great advice there. That is all of my questions on succession. I usually do to ask uh, reporters at the end of my interviews if you have um, any stories that you are working on that you want to mark for listeners to keep an eye out for in the next couple of weeks or months? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Right now I'm working on our annual story looking at agricultural land values and, and what that's doing. And one of the things we're going to be looking at this year is how how different parts of the country have diversified into often more profitable cropping systems. For example, North Dakota having more corn, Uh, Georgia now having a fairly good sized citrus industry. As we see things like this happen, it changes the value of land because Agricultural land is ultimately worth what it will produce. And so as we see higher productivity, that just supports that foundation of increasing land values as we move forward. So I think that's going to be a very interesting story for a lot of people. You can read Victoria's ongoing coverage of farmland and other farm financial issues in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine or online at dtnpf.com. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Victoria Myers. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier, Kylie Swanson, and Susan Payne. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode is brought to you by DTN Haytimer. Hay and forage quality isn't just about yield. It also relies on the perfect weather window to ensure a good crop. Use DTN Haytimer, part of MyDTN, to quickly assess risk by viewing maps specifically designed to show circumstances affecting hay quality. Pennsylvania producer David Graybill said, quote, other weather forecasts were not accurate enough. As DTN Haytimer shows, it takes the right combination of drying to preserve the crop. I would guess we lost three to four times the value in crops that it would cost us to keep our DTN subscription for the year. DTN Haytimer is part of the MyDTN platform. Visit MyDTN.com to start a free 14-day trial.